Bienvenidos a Radio Menea. I'm Miriam Soila Perez. And I'm Vero Valletti Flores, and we're two Latinx friends with wildly different music tastes. Each week we bring you music from the Latinx artists that we love, and today we have a kind of a deep historical dive into the Latin booms. Yeah, yeah. We'll tell you a little bit more about what we're talking about here when we talk about a Latin boom, but this is part one of a two-part episode series, and we are listening to Machito and his Afro-Cuban orchestra. This song is called Tumba el Quinto. Let's take another listen to it, and we'll give you a little bit more about what we're talking about today. What do you mean by a Latin boom? What are we talking about? So, yeah, when we were sort of conceptualizing this episode, we were thinking about this very U.S.-centric concept, right? Mm-hmm. Of when Latin rhythms and music and artists like pierce the mainstream consciousness um, in this very particular way, right? And obviously, like, even within the context of the United States, there's many Latinx people who live here. There's many Latinx people always making music and always listening to our own music, right? Mm-hmm. Pero sometimes there's moments where um, it enters sort of like the mainstream cultural fray in a different way. And it happens in these sort of like booms, right? In these sort of like sudden crazes for Latin rhythms. And that's what we wanted to explore. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting concept to like think about when something goes mainstream and why, like what was happening that helped shape that moment. Um, and that's kind of some of the things that we're like mostly hypothesizing about um, in this episode and um, which actually is going to be a two part episode um, about what was happening sociopolitically that like allowed that to happen, what was shaping it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then also, I mean, to me, this is really impossible to separate from race and racialization in the United Mm -hmm. States, right? From 
even from the concept of who's considered the mainstream, right? Like up mm-hmm. until now, piercing the mainstream means like getting the attention of white Americans, mm-hmm. right? Um, and what that has usually meant in many of these booms has been taking a Latin style, often, more often than not, an Afro-Latino musical style, and then sort of like sanitizing it a bit by stripping it of its roots in order to be able to popularize it for a quote-unquote mainstream United States audience while still being able to exoticize Latinx people, right? So it's Mm -hmm. this like very interesting, fascinating, um, shifting thing, right? Like what when we talk about like the Latinx boom that we had arguably are in right now, maybe, um, we will talk about how some of that looks very different than what um, some of what we're talking about right now with like Machito and his Afro-Cuban orchestra. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so we'll, we'll explore all of that in the next right. couple of weeks. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, that sort of um, whitewashing is also like a way to make something more palatable. So what, what makes it more palatable? Is it sometimes like, um, yeah, changing the rhythms or changing who's singing the rhythms or adding a collaborator who's, white and from the u.s like what is it that makes something palatable um to bring it to them so there's lots of different things that that happen over time yeah for sure so we're starting with machito and his afro-cuban orchestra which is not this sort of um sanitized um quote-unquote refined or um culturally stripped type of music but rather um You know, Machito and his Afro-Cuban orchestra were really pioneers of a genre called Latin jazz these days. Really, mostly I would say it's Afro-Cuban jazz. Um, And they were part of a wave of Black Cuban musicians who felt really stifled by the racial hierarchy in Cuba and came to the U.S. where, you know, like even though racial hierarchy also existed here and was also very stifling, um, they had like cultural and creative havens like Harlem, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're talking about like the 1940s here. Um, The Harlem Renaissance had, uh, had happened like you know, a couple decades earlier, Harlem was already established as, you know, a vibrant black cultural and creative uh, location, geography. Um, So that that's where, um, you know, like these black Cuban musicians would come to the United States um, wanting to enter like the vibrant music scene that um, was in Harlem. And um, you know, they started pioneering like this in, with this big orchestra music, bringing in some of their Afro-Cuban roots and really pioneered what we know today as as Latin jazz and um, spread it with the help of black Americans like Dizzy Gillespie, who like absolutely fell in love with it and helped sort of spread it beyond um, beyond Afro-Cuban people and Latino people that were in Harlem, East Harlem at the time. Yeah. And it makes so much sense, right? Because you're talking about, in some sense, people from the African diaspora. Um, although it's not, you know, it's not a diaspora in the in the sense that we often talk about it because it was a, you know, forced migration, right, through slavery. But that, you know, the roots of the music um, uh, for black folks in the U.S. and the roots of the music for black folks in Cuba are very similar, right? Like we're talking about yeah. similar West African roots. And so... Um, the collaboration makes a lot of sense. Also, the synergy, the interest, even if people might be um, relating to those roots in a different way, depending on, you know, how they're the ways in which they're 
families and ancestors were able to stay connected to or not, um, you know, musical tradition. So it's, you know, it's one of the many ways in which like this stuff makes you think about how borders are fictions, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think another interesting thing to note is how important their blackness was to these Cuban musicians to the point that, you know, it was Machito and his Afro-Cuban orchestra, right? Mm -hmm. Like he did not want anybody to make any motherfucking mistakes right mm-hmm. like he is talking about not just like cuba as like a nationalist concept but like a specific uh, population of cubans about black cubans and a black cuban musical tradition yeah yeah and i like i wonder if that you know i don't know that time frame and well enough to know whether that was like a political sort of like step to label that way you know um I don't know. I think about like when was like when was like African nationalism like in the U.S. like that as a movement is that's like the 60s, right? Like that's later. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit later. So, you know, it's hard yeah, to I say. Mean, it's a political but... move in the sense that like you are making your race, um, you, know, you know, like they're, he's making his blackness important and central. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think everybody knows like that. I mean, maybe it makes sense, but that, you know, yeah, racism, you know, was a really big sort of stratification in Cuban society, like pre the revolution. And it was part of what kind of the, re- one of the ideals of the revolution. And one of the things that Castro kind of sold to the Cuban people was this elimination of racial hierarchy. And while in some ways, like the status of black Cubans did improve a lot after the revolution, um, they in no way met that sort of goal of like eliminating racism in Cuban society. And like, it doesn't take much even just looking at who leads the Cuban government under Castro and now like there are mm-hmm. almost no black people, you know? So like yeah. the racial hierarchy still exists, but that was definitely one of the things I think that helped um, him be successful. I mean, it was a military, you know, takeover, but, um, or like a armed takeover. But one of the, one of the ways in which he got support was by um, responding to or offering something in counter to the, the real, um, significant racism that black folks experienced in Cuba, you know, in the fifties, forties, fifties and before. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And we'll talk about the effect the revolution had on sort of this boom, but this, um, what we're talking about is, um, before the revolution. Right. And so, um, we, are bringing Latin jazz and Machito and his Afro-Cuban orchestra because it sort of set the conditions for the emergence of Mambo. And Mambo wasn't like, it was sort of a new term, right? Used to like identify a new trend in dance Mm -hmm. um, and a new sort of like musical genre that was really based more um, specifically in danzón, which is a very Afro-Cuban genre right and so um so then what happens with mambo is that um you know like again established from afro-cuban danzón but became often like a little bit more simplified um and maybe even like more palatable for um for white audiences right and um one very uh very popular um mambo mambo artist was perez prado Mm -hmm. Um, let's take a listen to, uh, um, Mambo number five, the original, not (laughs) the Lou Vega version. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. uh, and then we can talk a little bit more about Mambo and sort of this era in, um, in Latin booms. (laughs) 
Sprala was a Cuban band leader um, who was one of the people who popularized uh, Mambo, right? Um, he um, had this adaptation of this big band adaptation of like Dan Song that like became known as Mambo. And uh, Mambo Number no. 5 is an example of, of this song. And like as we <laughs> mentioned before, I think that for people of like me and Perez's generation, um, we all know like the 1999 sort of like cover adaptation it's not exactly a cover but you know like a sort of version um of mambo number no. five but i think that like just of its own merits is highly recognizable just because of how big it was in in the cultural context of new york city and mm. you know and the united states more largely yeah and you can see the like the the dance aspect of it in the video too that of this song right that it's like they literally like there there's two figures like doing the dance steps um yeah so very centered on dancing yeah and it you know this is also like the american bandstand era right like what's happening in popular television that is promoting um music and and dancing right yeah this was really a huge dance craze right mm-hmm. like it was the i mean obviously music is inherently tied to dance but like this was really it really became known as like a big dance trend right and people wanted to learn how to dance the mambo and people watched dancers like watched the orchestra and also there were dancers and they came to watch dancers and sometimes would be like very titillated by interracial dancer couples right which Mm. were you know pearl clutchy you know Mm -hmm. in in the club scene in in new york city so new york city was sort of the center of this um scene that because new york city is a cultural capital for um cultural production in across the united states and where like a lot of television and radio came out of um it sort of um, became a national phenomenon. But New York City was really uh, the center of it. And um, was this was part of like the club scene, right? Part of like New York City nightlife, right? Um, that became this other, you know, nationwide cultural phenomenon. And, um, you know, like, for example, this is the context that like Tito Puente comes up in, right? Like these big bands that were such a big staple of New York City nightlife. And he was a star percussionist on the timbales, right? So um, Mambo, and then later um, Cha-Cha became this like nationwide musical uh, and dance craze. And I think, I don't know if it's like me specifically, but to me it feels really hard to think about culture in the 1950s and 60s in the United States without Mambo and mm-hmm. without sort of... Um, yeah, like Cube, Afro-Cuban big band music mm-hmm. um, and Latin jazz. It feels like it fueled so um, many things. It was, you know, fueled by like tourism to Cuba, like culture, right? Like I Love Lucy 
sort mm-hmm. of as a cultural phenomenon became a part of that. Right. Um, think about like West Side Story emerges in this context, mm-hmm. right? Like these like really big pieces of um, cultural touchstones in the United States nationally are sort of tied to this Latin boom. And, um, you know, as problematic and widely popular as they all <laughs> were mm-hmm. in their own ways. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I Love Lucy, like, Desi was a musician, right? Like, that was part of the whole yeah. plot yeah. line. And Desi of, was. he Desi Arnaz right. was, like, a mm-hmm. big band leader. And, mm-hmm. yeah, and he – and that was that was the deal. He was part of this nightlife phenomenon. That was his job. He was right. a big band leader. Right. Yeah, and this of, is also – this, this highly mm-hmm. recognizable nightlife scene in New York City that everybody right. knew about because it was so right. inherent to the culture. And the, the nightlife scene in Havana because, like, this is still the time when people are – easily traveling between the United States and Havana and, you know, Hemingway and like, who are the people Mm -hmm. that are like spending a lot of time in Havana? Mm -hmm. Um, The Copacabana, like all of that stuff. That's, that's this era of like um, using sort of Havana as like a playground, you know, like, and going there to like, you know, drink and do drugs and like sleep with sex workers and you know, all of that. Right. That's a part of the context too. Yeah. And it's so interesting because when I think obviously my family was not in the United States at this time. So but when like when I first got to the United States, my father wouldn't allow us to watch Spanish language television because he wanted us to learn English. Um, that didn't last it's l- very long. <laughs> it's very hard to enforce. But um, I remember like those first few months, like landing on Isle of Lucy, right? And mm-hmm. um, and being like, okay, like this is like this. There was like I found this one Latino dude who sometimes spoke in Spanish, and I was like, okay, this I will watch, right? <laughs> and and I watched a lot of Isle of Lucy, and then I stayed on other shows on Nick at Night, which was like the channel, like Nickelodeon's like late night programming. And I feel like so many older shows from the 50s were sort of like imbued with this cultural context mm-hmm. of like the exotic Latino, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And 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 so, you know, like that's what I Love Lucy played on, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that like, like we will see in a lot of these Latin booms, it's like this combination of sort of sanitizing and stripping where you have like Desi Arnaz being like the band leader um, who is, Desi is not black, right? But even Mm -hmm. though like most of like the major pioneers of this style were black Cubans, um, but who makes it onto television is Desi Arnaz. Mm -hmm. And, um, but still, so it's like you strip it enough so that it's not black, but then you also keep it exotic, right? And like, that is sort of like, I think this really weird, um, racial dynamic that happens Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. a lot of these latin booms or there's like sort of like a stripping of like cultural context to make it palatable for white audiences but still titillating enough to hit like this like you know like um exotic primitive um you know etc narratives about who latino people are Right. Yeah. I mean, because that show is all about his otherness. Right. And all about him like stumbling around and his accent and like um, so, yeah, he's very much other in that show, you know, even if he's not. Yeah, he's not black. And I don't think that a black Cuban actor musician would have been able to cast in that show, you know, No. Um, and it would never have been 
Lucy. Yeah, because, nor would it have been acceptable yeah. for right. him to be dating right. married to a like, white woman. Right. It was already very titillating yeah. for Desi Arnaz to be married to yeah. an American white woman. Yeah, it was edgy. Yeah. Did you yeah. relate at all? Like, do you remember watching that as a kid? And did you relate at all to his sort of like struggles with like acculturation you know absolutely yeah with like not understanding what the fuck the shit was here like Mm -hmm. how i remember very specifically when there's this one part a clip where he's reading a children's book to his kid they have a baby Mm -hmm. and they're reading a children's book and he can't make out the differences between like all the O-U-G-H words, mm. like though and tough and thought, like all those like weird, like it's like, how the fuck do you know which one it is? <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm like, yeah, how do you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just, you just have to know, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. But like, there was like little moments like that where I felt, yeah, like I felt like, it, even though it was a, a sort of like exoticized and problematic depiction of who Latinos are in the United States, I was like, yeah, I felt very other in this weird place. And I was yeah. like, I feel you, my guy. Like, I mean, I'm you, in the same position. You were, you know, you were other. Um, it's so interesting because, like, you know, this is this is before the wave, the, like, j- massive wave of Cuban exiles and you know immigration to the united states because of the revolution but it sort of in some ways sets the stage for um cubans experiencing that kind of like you know cultural shift um to be much more a part of like the story in this in like the latinx kind of context in the u.s because he becomes one of many you know like pop culture figures that are doing that kind of like bridging between cuban and american culture yeah yeah exactly and then you know also sort of not exactly part of this phenomenon but i think adjacent to like this like sort of concept of a latin boom you see somebody like carmen miranda for example who is brazilian not cuban she wasn't in mambo but i think she she was around a little bit before and around the same time and played on this similar interest in like the racialized but whitewashed exotic right which is like the the sort of what we're dealing with here in this boom and wants to come And, um, you know, like also outside of this, but probably worth mentioning is um, Richie Valens, right? Richie Valens isn't part of like, you know, like this particular boom or this wave. But um, when La Bamba comes out in 1959, like it's a song that's a huge hit. It's a Mexican folk song. It's Mm -hmm. in Spanish. And the American public has been used to hearing (laughs) like Mm -hmm. Spanish language pop culture for like a good decade now at this point so um even though it's i would say i would place richie valens more in with like a generation of like black artists that pioneered pop uh rock and roll and you know richie valens isn't black he's um you you know he's he's not black but he's i I would place him sort of more closer to that um wave of folks um i don't think it's like completely outside of the realm of possibility that like this um, sort of national obsession with Latin rhythms made some room for a star like Richie Valens and hit like La Bamba. Yeah. Yeah. And when, and when we're researching this episode, you know, I found really interesting was the list of Latin songs that made the billboard top 100 or hot 100. Um, 
so not like there's like a separate Latin list, right? But this is like the mainstream list. And so, um, you know, this, that Richie Valens, La Bamba was the first Spanish language song to enter the Hot 100. So, you know, you sort of start to see like the beginning of an acceptance um, of music in like the pop mainstream sphere in Spanish, you know? And I think that, yeah, there's totally an argument to be made that, that what was happening in Cuba, what was happening in Harlem, like the ways in which Mambo was influencing people, like people like were learning how to do Mambo on like American Bandstand or whatever, um, allows that to be like more palatable for people. Yeah. So it's really interesting to think about West Side Story, as you mentioned that it's in this context. Was it, um, it was written by like white Jewish men as part of sort of like musical theater and Broadway, right? It wasn't written by Puerto Ricans. Yeah, yeah, no, not at all. And but the, it, it became this really huge cultural touchstone, and sort of like how one way that like mainstream U.S. Uh, people related to Latinos and Latinidad, and you have like for you know in the in the movie version, the film yeah. version, like Maria being played by this white woman. And it's Wood. such a cultural touchstone mm-hmm. today that it's being remade like again mm-hmm. by Steven Spielberg today, which has like set off this like new wave of dialogue and debate about the role of West Side Story and how it portrayed Puerto Ricans, how it portrayed um, Latinos um, and, and all, and what, what it means today. Yeah. And like, you know, they, they, blatantly painted white people's faces brown to be Puerto Ricans on this in this movie like Natalie Wood and like I think that Rita Moreno might have been one of the only Puerto Ricans involved but they also like darkened her skin you know so this idea that like she's Puerto Rican like her skin doesn't need to change for this show this movie but like this idea of what does a Puerto Rican look like and like how to like emphasize sort of like the white versus not white in many ways in the way that they were like conceptualizing this like story of these two rival gangs and then the love story and all that jazz you know so yeah yeah sort of based on Romeo and Juliet uh-huh uh-huh yeah I haven't and seen anything about the new version um oh the- there is actually I read this really great um debate that Isabelia our friend Isabelia Herrera who's been on the show um was part of like a dialogue in the New York Times we can link it um Mm-hmm. in in the show notes so dialogue in the new york times about west side story and its role in um the culture <laughs> in the past and what it means that it's being remade today and um what value it has and what harm it does mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. cool yeah yeah definitely like that all right so this is the first boom and we're gonna get into sort of the next boom, but first we want to take um, a pause to talk about our membership program. Yes, y'all, we, I don't know if we've like really been as clear as we can be about how amazing it is Mm -hmm. that we have members that support us, but it Mm -hmm. really just makes such a huge difference for us in terms of how sustainable this is. We're able Mm -hmm. to uh, pay Maite to edit the first round of this mm-hmm. of this show for us, which has really opened up our ability to put more into our episodes like this mm-hmm. one, right? Like this episode was so research heavy yeah. and it was fun and cool to research and we have time to do it because we're not necessarily as um, tied up into the logistics of it because we can get support to do that yeah. from Maite. Shout out Maite, we love you. <laughs> yes. And so March is our birthday month. 
Um, we're six. We turned six this month, which is bananas. I feel like in podcast years, that's like wow, right? Really, um, or at least like middle aged. And so we decided that like we talk about our membership program often, but we decided that we'll do kind of like an NPR style, like once a year, we're gonna go hard and really try to convince the folks who listen regularly who are not members to join the membership program. Um, it's basically like our version of Patreon. We use a different service than Patreon, but it's a similar model in that um, for five, 10 or $15 a month, whatever's in your budget, you get a um, access to a members only feed of the show, which always has um, an extra segment. So um, today, if you were a member of our show, you would get another segment um, kind of going deeper into one of the things that we talked about and bringing some other music. So, you know, we always have something extra for our members. And that's like an important offering that we give to you as a thank you for um, supporting our show. And so it is a monthly contribution. Um, and that's what really makes it possible to, to do things. Yeah. Like Beto said, like outsource um, some of the editing so we can focus more on content. And then because it's our birthday and we want to sort of um, give a thank you to anybody who joins our membership program who hasn't been a member, we will offer you a free um Menos Violencia Mas Perreo poster that Vero designed. Um, so we'll send that to you if you want it, if you become a member anytime in the month of March. Thank you so much, y'all. We really appreciate y'all. And if you can just listen and you're not a member, we love you so much too. It really means a lot that y'all listen yeah. every week. Totally. And happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're, you're going chronologically in this situation in terms of the we are. different booms. Um, so what's next? So I was thinking about how to conceptualize it because I feel like I have three really discrete booms that fit into this definition that like I that we conceptualize around like a Latin boom being like Latin rhythms, often Afro-Latino rhythms are sanitized, stripped a little bit of its roots, popularized in the mainstream, which is a white mainstream. And then like, you know, it makes this like sort of like large cultural um, impact. There's three of those that like, you know, since the fifties starting with Mambo, but like in between, like we are, so we, we got into Mambo, we got into Cha-Cha and then like the next obvious one doesn't come until the nineties, like Latin explosion think like Ricky Martin, think Shakira, but like there's a lot in between, right? So this next era isn't quite a boom, but we felt like we had to sort of mention it, right? So mm -hmm. we'll get into uh, the 90s and the quote-unquote Latin explosion then in part two of this series, but we wanted to focus a little bit on the in-between. Mm -hmm. And um, part of that is that, um, you know, culture moves so fast now, right? And I think that we need to realize that in like the 70s, the 80s, the 50s, like how much power was concentrated in a few white hands, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and that things were like, we're talking about like major print outlets, we're talking about television, we're talking about like huge mediums that required a lot of big money buy-in to make it through. Mm -hmm. And so... Those exist today, of course. Yeah. Um, they still remain. But there's a lot of other avenues for entering other than like, you know, getting on the Grammys a la Ricky Martin, right? Mm -hmm. For your U.S. crossover moment. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And or so getting on the radio waves through these like ma major, you know, rec 
record companies and all the gatekeepers or even getting like on the bill at a club in your city, you know, so that people can hear you. Like there's just so many. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, like there were smaller um, outlets. There were smaller local publications. There were local scenes. There were, um, you know, this was before clear channel entertainment, right. Which like took all of the, like the, beautiful, vibrant little radio stations that existed all over the country and sort of like made them into these like media, this like one media conglomerate, right? Um, That was like a really sad moment in radio history, for example, right? So there were a lot of really rich, vibrant local scenes where different things were happening, right? Um, And of course, like Latinx people listening to Latinx music throughout this whole time. Um, but since we're talking about like thing, Latinx rhythms, like Latin rhythms entering and piercing like a national mainstream moment, there's, that didn't happen as much uh, during this time, but there were a few instances. And so we want to talk about those. Um, so the first song that we're going to talk about is Oye Como Va by Santana. Let's take a listen. is the Santana version. We're talking about Santana, the band, formed by Carlos Santana, who is this um, Mexican musician, Mexican-American. He, I think he's born in Mexico, um, but um, based in San Francisco. The band was San Francisco-based. Um, and Oye Como Va was originally a Tito Puente song, right? So here we're going back to like this like Mambo era. We talked about how Tito Puente sort of came up as this um, star percussionist, a timbalero in that era. And he um, and he put out this song, Oye Como Va, in the 60s, in 1962. Yeah. And Carlos Santana and his band developed this sort of like driving Latin rock, uh, still very Afro-Cuban percussion-influenced version of Oye Como Va that became huge in the 70s, in, um, I think, released in 1971. And so 
You know, Santana were this like really little known band from San Francisco when they played Woodstock, but then became huge. And um, and this song sort of pierced the, um, the, the cultural mainstream in a way that other Latin rhythms at the time really weren't. And, and um, you know, we talked a little bit about what effect the Cuban Revolution would have on, on um, the music here. And the Mambo craze really sort of ended um, mm-hmm. when the Cuban Revolution happened because of a few different things. One being that the sort of source of musicians was cut off, right? Like you couldn't like just like travel back and forth anymore. And the pioneers of of mambo and that genre were Afro-Cuban musicians. Um, and then also because of the Cold War and like anti-communist sentiment, um, it became really unpopular to, you know, want to be associated with Cubans and Cuban music and Cuban culture. So it sort of came to a very abrupt end um, after the revolution. And um, Carlos Santana was a huge fan of Latin jazz and of folks like Tito Puente and um, sort of adapted those rhythms and musical traditions that were, you know, not necessarily his heritage, right? Like he's Mexican, um, but were um, were part of like what his sonic landscape was and, um, and incorporated it into into the um into the music that they were making and the you know like the band was like a multi-racial band it was a lot of um it was like mexican 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 american folks black folks um and um and sort of became this huge huge hit from there mm-hmm. and i think the other thing that um thinking about going back to what you're saying about mambo and like the cuban revolution um, you know, not only was there, yeah, the anti-Cuban sentiment around communism and the lack, like, inability to, like, move between the two places, you know, no more tourism to Cuba, very little travel for Cubans unless they were leaving um, permanently. And then there was n- the music industry was kind of, like, annihilated by the, the Cuban revolution itself, right? So, like, mm-hmm. the music industry in Cuba also, like, much, much more difficult Um I mean, there is a state-sponsored industry somewhat, but, like, it's it looks very, very different. And so, um, and then the people who leave Cuba, who then become musicians, like, there's a, who were musicians in Cuba and, and reestablished here, there's, like, a delay because people had to leave all their resources behind. And so That's it right. takes a while for Cubans in the U.S. to then start um, making music again, um, although it does, you know, it does happen. Um, this I feel like Santana is such a figure because of his comeback in the 90s, you know, like, he yeah, yeah, he <laughs> sort of plays a role in like the 90s uh-huh. Latin boom, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. he's like, you know, part of like, um, you know, joins forces with Matchbox 20 or Rob mm-hmm. Thomas or, you know, mm-hmm. like, I don't remember if it was like the band yeah. or, or the one dude, but it was yeah. like, there was like Maria Maria, there was like smooth, right? Spanish yeah. Harlem Mona uh-huh. Lisa. I feel like that phrase is like uh-huh. tattooed inside of my brain. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So yeah. it's so interesting, right? That he like sort of comes back and plays this role as like this legendary guitarist from this right. time. Right. But that's what he was known for, right? He was right. known for like being this like amazing guitarist that incorporated um, Latin rhythms into his rock. 
Right. And he says he was inspired by Richie Valens. So it's like, you know, continuing to make the linkages to like the people that maybe have a moment that's singular rather than like as part of a wave, but that still kind of build on what happens in the future. And then I didn't yeah. know this until you brought this up, but that he kind of got big or Santana, the band got big because of Woodstock. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Cause they weren't really known very much when they like were booked for Woodstock. I think that like there was like some dude who was like, yes, you guys are going to be big. Let's book you for Woodstock. And like, that was sort of their big blow up moment. Mm-hmm. When we were prepping this episode, you had to remind me, I was like, wait, wasn't Woodstock like really dangerous? And you're like, no, that was the nineties Woodstock. Right. There was the Woodstock two Woodstock revival. Like the really rapey, rioty fire <laughs> Woodstock. Like which pit. Yeah. Yeah. Which I'm sure there was a lot of rape happening at the original Woodstock too. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we heard about it as like a peace and love fest. And yeah. You know, yeah. Surely it was for some. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, amazing to think about. Yeah. Woodstock as a, as a moment that made certain people's musical careers possible you know because of the audience that they received yeah yeah for sure for sure and like as a place where a latin rhythm and like a like a latin music sort of made an impact right Mm -hmm. like i don't think when i think about woodstock that's not what comes to mind for me right i think of like um not necessarily like exclusively white right because like Jimi hendrix obviously is part of that legacy right um but i think of like i don't think about latino people really and um yeah 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 Yeah. and then it's like yeah it's like what else is going on in this era right it's like vietnam war you know and i don't know enough about it to know like the impact of the vietnam war and like I mean, it was a draft, right? So theoretically, it impacts everybody equally. But, um, mm, but I imagine, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I imagine, yeah. The more privilege you have, the more ways in which you have to dodge the draft, right? Right, so, like, right. Probably People more black in and brown school, folks. money, yeah. connections, all of that. You right. Know? Going to Vietnam and then um, the Reagan era in the eighties is like we're kind of coming up to that. Yeah, um, yeah. We had like a sort of, and and you know, like in this sort of this era that I'm dubbing like the in between, right? We have mm-hmm. like things like Carlos Santana, like that was seventy one. Um, in the late sixties, we start seeing like Boogaloo sort of like make a little bit of like headway, also, right? Like songs like I Like It by Pete, Pete Rodriguez and like. Um, Bang Bang by Joe Cuba, right? Like Watermelon Man, Mongo Santa Maria. Those are like all like Boogaloo songs. And if you want to know a little bit more about Boogaloo, we spoke a little bit more deeply about it in our New York episodes because it was um, a style that came up through um, the merging of like doo-wop and R&B and, um, and Latin rhythms that was happening because of people living next to each other in Harlem mm-hmm. and East Harlem and El Barrio. Yeah. Um, so there was like, you know, like some other stuff happening here, but like it was also, is all like a little bit like little blips and like isolated, not as much of a part of like a boom, like the Mambo craze was, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, we can only sort of hypothesize as to why, you know, like yeah. some of these cultural influences, what was going on. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But another song and slash cultural phenomenon that occurred around this time um, in this sort of like in between um, was the Miami Sound Machine. Mm -hmm. So let's take a listen to Conga 
and we'll talk about it. big fan of the Miami Sound Machine yeah. and I love the song. You I have think them on Miami vinyl, Sound right? Machine era Gloria is my personal favorite. I mean, mm. her solo work is, you know, has its own place. But mm -hmm. I personally am a huge fan of Miami Sound Machine. Mm -hmm. This like 80s sound that was um, that the Estefans were, were doing was mm -hmm. my fucking jam. Yeah. And so this is what we were just talking about of like, okay, now Cuban exiles, immigrants in the U.S. have had a little bit of time to get established and a lot of help um, to get established by the U.S. government in terms of there was like loans and like English classes and like an immediate path to citizenship, which all came out of the Cold War anti-communist, anti-Castro stance. Um, and so you start to see Cuban-American musicians like both of them are Cuban um, and immigrated as children um, starting to establish themselves again and, and make a make a career and Gloria's mother was a singer in Cuba. So there's this legacy to sort of the connection of the, the industry in Cuba itself. Um, and then this song feels like a mythology of my childhood because the first concert I ever went to was Miami Sound Machine. And I was four and I fell asleep during the conga. That's uh. the story that I've told. <laughs> How so. can you fall asleep? Come on, shake your body, baby, do that conga. Because <laughs> you're so four, good. Because you're four years old and it's way past your bedtime, and, <laughs> and you you're were like fucking tired yeah. and did not have the wherewithal to stay awake. Yeah, and no, you're a Latino kid who can curl up in the chair at the during a loud party and fall asleep because that's what you have yeah, to do. Yeah, that's you know? like, like you know the Latino kid legacy, like yeah. falling asleep through anything, like yeah. just like two chairs pushed together. There's right. loud music, like yeah. no problem. Yeah, no one's worried about your bedtime. Like you're gonna be at the fall concert. asleep under the the clutch moment. Once I after came coming to the United States is falling asleep in the in the bed with all the coats. You know, uh, ooh, that's comfy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like the Venezuela moment. That's like the United States like diaspora yeah. party moment. Right, where, like, there's you don't one have bed coats with all the coats and that's in Venezuela. Asleep. Right. It's much yeah. more comfortable than two chairs pulled together. <laughs> but that's what we still made it happen. Yeah. Um, so we're going to actually go deeper into um, into Miami in, in a couple of weeks. I'm excited to do that. So we'll get to talk a lot more about the Estefans and like the, the music scene in Miami. But yeah, I mean, this was definitely a moment like they 
she won her first Grammy um, with one of the Miami Samusim songs. Now I can't remember which one it is, but um, it was a big deal. You know, it was a big moment for them. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's it's it's, and again, like it was like a huge, huge song and a huge cultural touchstone and. I feel like it was one of these, like, I feel like this in-between moment is, like, not irrelevant. You know what I mean? It's not a big boom, but it sort of, like, is not unconnected to the mambo craze of the 50s and also, like, is not unconnected to the Latin explosion that would happen later, right? Like, Mm -hmm. for example, like, the Estefans were such a huge part of making that happen yeah right so it felt important to talk about the sort of in-between space even though it doesn't quite match the definition that we have for the rest of it well and it's interesting too because the conga is a dance again yeah come on everybody let's do the conga you know so um it's kind of goes links back to this like the mambo moment right that was also about about a dance and like bringing a latin dance to uh an american audience and sort of like walking people through it. <laughs> it's making me think of mm-hmm. the Macarena too, um, which maybe we'll talk about later on. But, um, but yeah. 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 All right, y'all. Thanks so much for listening. Yes. That's all we have for part one of this. We are going to get into uh, the 90s Latin explosion. Don't worry. We'll talk all about Ricky Martin. We'll talk all about Shakira. We'll talk all about J-Lo. And like our current passing mm-hmm. I don't know moment yeah. <laughs> with um, that sort of exploded um, with Luis Fonsi and Daddy Yankees Despacito mm-hmm. so um, tune More in now. next week to hear more about those but hope you enjoyed our first part and that you join us next week and as always, all of the information about our songs are in our show notes at RileyMania.com. Make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram. We also have a newsletter. And yeah, big thank you to our members and to those of you considering becoming members in honor of our sixth birthday this month. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Hasta la próxima. Ciao. <laughs> Que lo quiero y tú eres Pero tú ves cómo hemos llegado hasta aquí